Today's scripture comes from 1 Corinthians 12, uh, at the very end, 31b to 13, verses 7. And I will show you a still more excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. You may be seated. Well, as you're being seated, welcome. I'm Heath. I'm also part of the team here at Christ City. And uh, yeah, I recognize the loaded nature of that text. So let's, uh, let's pray before we begin. God, we, we come before you this morning realizing that sometimes this text is difficult for us because, uh, quite frankly, we, have very, we haven't seen much of it in our world. So Lord, I ask you give us understanding, you give us clarity, and that we walk away here greatly encouraged by your love for us. In this I pray. Amen. Now there's a famous story told uh, about William Booth. Now I don't know how many of you know who William Booth was. He was the founder and the first general of the Salvation Army. And it was Christmas and the year was 1910. And, and, and this is later on in his career, almost to the point of his death, and there was a large crowd that was gathered for the annual conference, and they were waiting in expectation for him to speak. And, and at some point, he fell gravely ill before he was supposed to speak. And in that, when news went out to all of the, all of the people gathered to hear him, there was a, a wave of sadness, a wave of disappointment, because apparently he was a good speaker, and everybody was excited to hear what he had for the faithful troops of the Salvation Army. However, what he did do was sent a telegram. And that telegram said this. You can see it on the slide. Others. Full stop. Now, there's something remarkably profound about this word. Booth took his 50 years of ministry, serving the least, serving the lost, giving everything he had to proclaim hope to a broken and dying world, giving him life through Jesus. This man spent his whole life serving the least, the lost, and the broken of British society. Everything that he did, from proclamation evangelism to, to going into bars, bars and pubs and like retuning like secular songs with Christian lyrics, he did everything, tried everything, all of this distilled into one word, others. This word others encapsulates the outward thrust that Booth saw and understood what it meant to be a Christian to live and to work and serve in this world. And I don't think he's wrong. Others, full stop. William Booth essentially restated the outward thrust that Paul says here to the church in Corinth. This word other others puts flesh on what Paul discusses as love here in our text this morning. So Christ City, in all of 1 Corinthians, and particularly in chapter 13, how are we to interact with others, Christ City? Love, full stop. What is most central to the Christian life and faith, Christ City? Love, full stop. 
How are the mysteries of God proclaimed in this world? Love, full stop. How are we to worship together? Love, full stop. How are we to eat together and deal with these, our consciences and, you know, with food sacrificed to idols or food not sacrificed to idols? Love, full stop. How are we to deal with the Lord's table and communion? Love, full stop. How then are we to prioritize and use and operate in our spiritual giftings? You guessed it. Love, full stop. Paul starts this whole discourse that we've been in for a long time now in chapter 8 saying this, in in chapter 8. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. He's, He's quoting a slogan of theirs. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Love, full stop. Paul gets to the end of chapter 12. And he says this, at the end of chapter 12, I will show you still a more excellent way. Love, full stop. Spoiler alert, the most excellent way is, you guessed it, love, full stop. And you're like, okay, Heath, I get it. Stop saying love, full stop. Please, please stop. From Corinth to Vancouver, 2,000 years of history, the global community of faith We have still struggled with this thing called love, full stop. Now, there's two significant questions that we have to really grapple with that surround this text that if I don't address them, we've missed the point. You see, I've had to grapple with them not only as somebody who grew up in the church, but also as somebody who's walked away from the church and as somebody who lives and works and has the privilege to be on the downtown east side. I've had to grapple with this. The questions are, what is this love really? What is this love, really? And the second question we have to grapple with is, is how do we walk in this love? How do we actually accomplish what what Paul puts forward here? And I'm just going to state the elephant in the room. We ask these questions because more often than not, we have not lived these, we have not seen these things lived out, have we? Yeah, many of us listen to the Mars Hill podcast. I'm just going to say it. That's like a sad tale of love gone bad. This is not a topical sermon on love but rather it's a 1 Corinthians sermon talking about love, addressing love in this context. But let's just dip our head out of the text for a second and just look at something. Societally, when talking about love, generally in our culture, we have these same questions, whether you're inside the church or outside of the church. Practically and experientially, We have been disappointed. We have felt grifted by love. We've been scammed by love, haven't we? We have this expectation of love that sits right up here, and then we have the reality of love that sits down here. And we're continually disappointed by the gap that exists between the two of those. We have this expectation gap that that really is particularly acutely aware of, we're made aware of in here in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. So then the first question is like, what does this love actually look like? What is this love that Paul talks about here? Now, it doesn't matter if you grew up in the church or not. You've probably heard this text before. If you're a wedding, if you've been at a wedding, I'm just going to state it. If you've been at a wedding, you probably heard this text and you're like, okay, been there, divorced that, right? Okay, no one will audibly say this out loud. But if we're honest with ourselves, we see what Paul writes here. And this experience feels somewhat unrealistic, wholly unattainable, quite frankly, ethereal, sand in my hands. Something so high, 
so high that it's got to be too good to be true. So whether you're a Christian here this morning or not, there seems to be a disparity between our expectation of love and our felt reality of love. It feels as though we cannot attain or live up to what Paul addresses here. For us to grapple with these huge questions, we have to look at a couple things in this text. Paul shows us two things. One, the necessity of love. And the second thing he shows us is the nature of love. The nature of love. Probably is because we have a distorted view of what that it really is. So, point number one. So we all have this unmet expectations. And primarily they're due to our history, our personalities, etc. So there may be someone in this room who had a loving home, who had parents that showed them sacrificial love. You've had siblings that you didn't fight with. Yeah, that's not me. And you've had relationships that have, have gone well, and you've actually seen this worked out. And there's this gap that I'm referring to doesn't really exist at all. But let's just face it. If you're there, if you're that person, you are the unicorn in the room. Okay, you can laugh. It's okay. Sometimes, some of us, in order to protect ourselves, we jettison this idea of love. In fact, we live our lives functionally in a post-love reality. We become like love hermits. We, uh, we hide ourselves, we bury ourselves, we put so much armor, we hunker down to weather the storms of love around us because these emotional storms, they hurt us. You see, there's been so much pain that in context of love, that it's just too real and we can't handle it. So we emotionally close ourselves off. In other words, we don't put ourselves in a position to receive love and therefore we actually can't give love. There are others of us in this room that recognize the power of love unconsciously or consciously. We, we get ahead of the hurt, right? And we use love, manipulate the feelings of others, and we manipulate all the things associated with love. We live in a place where we don't think we need love. Love becomes rather a tool, a commodity for us to, to trade and to, to use transactionally for our benefit, for our emotional, our sexual bottom line. How's that working for us as a society? Hmm. Now, others of us might be ambivalent to what this, you know, thing of love is, and we're, we're pragmatic, and we, we think that this love is a mirage that's too good to be true. We understand the unmet expectations here. So what we do, we functionally, we take love, and we put it as some sort of religious icon on the shelf of faith, and we just let it gather dust there, and pragmatically we you know, keep calm, walk on, and we just walk with open wounds, festering it throughout our lives. Now, there's other, others of us, you know, I lived in Greece, and it was a great trade in knockoff designer bags. So other, others of us, we've got like the Gucci handbag knockoff, because it's, it's easy, it doesn't cost as much, and we can control it. The problem with Gucci handbags that are fake is that they fall apart in their garbage. And lastly, others of us, we pantomime love. We give and we give and we give out of love, but rather, rather than from the real source, but a voiceless sense of duty. Oh, let me tell you, I've seen these people and I've been this person. And what you end up having is love that's really showing anger, bitterness, and a sarcastic, jaded state of mind. So we all have distorted views of love. And there may be four or five other ones that I didn't articulate here. We have these distorted views of love because we live in a broken and distorted world. We use and misuse things and we try to patch and, met and, and mend our unmet expectations 
with the very things that actually destroy us. We need to understand this before we can dip our toes into 1 Corinthians 13. Paul understood this was the same reality for this Corinthian church. The Corinthians were no different than we are. Their community was a festering wound of selfishness, selfish ambition, a collection of fractured and transactional relationships. It had to do with rapid, divisive patronage, transactional sexual sin, unequal power dynamics, a place that was a community that was full of trauma, seemingly devoid of love, unfortunately devoid of the love that was founded upon by Jesus Christ himself. And we are no different. Paul pauses here in 1 Corinthians 13, and he expresses what I think is the very heart of this letter. Paul insists that love is essential. It's the essential element of the Christian living, not only for shared worship and order in our gatherings, but for how we live our lives. All other things are patches in this expectational gap. So Paul says, Paul says at the end of 30, chapter 12, verse 30, let me show you a better way. Let me show you a better way than all this other garbage that you're trying to patch. And he, and he says, N.T. Wright, he's an old dusty theologian dude with a beard cooler than mine, and he said this, Paul begins by insisting that it is love that gives meaning and appropriate flavor to all other Christian living. Christ City, we just like the Corinthians need we have a desperate need for love, full stop. Let's look at our text, one through three. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have, if I deliver my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Now, this, though this text is routinely ripped off for wedding sermons, upon close examination, Paul is speaking directly, directly to the Corinthian context, coming right after the use and abuse of spiritual gifts. First one again, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels and have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Well, some of you know that I'm weird, so this week I took a really strange deep dive into this whole, the, the words associated with clanging, you know, gong and, you know, symbols. Well, this, I, I'll spare you the laborious detail, but, but essentially what this says is, if I lack love, if my words may be the human words or the gift of tongues used to edify and worship, if I lack love, I'm like torture, torture to your ears. Without love, tongues are torture to others? No, that's not what he says here. It's not the gift. Without love, I become a torture to your ears. Let's just hope that's not the case this morning, okay? So, for some that you may not know, we lived in Greece for a number of years, and we lived on the fifth floor, and, you know, the streets are narrow, and in August, it's like 40 degrees, and everything's hot, and we have every door, every window open. You can hear everything. Unfortunately for us, right across the street was a music school. Now, that's great. I, I can handle the trombones. I can handle the trumpets. I can handle the, I can even handle the cymbals. What I couldn't handle was this. All day long, every day, at nauseum. 
And I'm like, no, God, no, please make it stop. I was like peeling your fingernails off. It was, it was literally torture, literally torture. That's what Paul says here. Without love, I am the notes of dissonance. I am the scales off key repeated for hours. I am the noisy gong. I am the clanging cymbal, the very essence of torture. So let's continue. This is fun. Verse 2. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. Nothing. So Paul, at the beginning of verse 31 that we didn't read, he says, people of Corinth really earnestly desire the higher gifts. But then Paul says about these very same higher gifts, he says, look, if you have these higher gifts, if you speak the oracles of God prophetically, if you can understand the deepest mysteries of the earth and the spiritual plane, if you possess knowledge, both great and small, if you wield faith as the ability to recreate the natural order, if I possess all of this power and I lack love, I'm nothing. Nada. Zilch. Now, he doesn't say here, if I lack love, I don't become like Voldemort or some sort of weird Sauron guy, some dark entity with dark powers. No, he says, you are nothing. Nothing. I've always struggled with the verses in Matthew chapter 7. And, but this is this very idea right here. These are the scary verses from Matthew chapter 7, 21 to 23. And Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Ooh. If I operate in the prophetic, if I can command demons... Even if I possess magical, spiritual, miraculous power, without love I am nothing. Nothing. Lawless. But Paul doesn't stop there. Verse 3 he says, If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but I have not love, I gain nothing. So he's talking about tongues who edify himself. Then he talks about works of knowledge and, and miracles. And then he talks about like generosity. He says, if, if out of some sort of twisted duty, I give everything I have, all that I own, even to the point of death, even martyrdom for this sake, and I lack love, oh, it's for naught. I gain nothing. Without love, tongues will be self-inflating. Without love, prophetic powers, knowledge, and spiritual mysteries will be divisive. Without love, our sacrifice and our generosity will be self-serving. Our need for love is a huge blind spot for us. Unfortunately, we are so biased to self that we can't even see this. Paul states for us the stark, naked words here. Love, not spiritual prowess. Love, not knowledge. Love, not hubris. Love is the fulcrum, the linchpin, the key, not only to understanding all of the mysteries of heaven and earth, not only to have appropriate worship, but no, it's the essential guide for human behavior. The force in which Paul states, it's, it's like this. It's saying, we need love like we need air. We need love like we need air. And without this love, we're like suffocating in the vacuum of space. 
Now, Anthony Thistleton, he's another theologian, he kind of summarizes these three verses this way. He says, Tongues minister primarily to the self, and knowledge may inflate the self rather than build others. Even good deeds without love can amount to self-glorification. Love does not seek its own personal good, but the welfare of the other. Others. Full stop. This is what William Booth was getting at with this famous telegram. Now we begin to see some clarity here. Love does not seek its own good, but rather the welfare of the other. Paul rips the band-aid off of what we long for really deep down, love. And he exposes the selfish and self-serving ways in, in the things that we do and the things that the Corinthians did to use, to substitute, to patch that up. Hmm. We have substitutes called spiritual rhythms, self-care, our knowledge and understanding. We even use the gifts and, and receive and, and, and operate in prophetic miracles and prophecy. But without selfless love, we are nothing and we gain nothing. It's here that in this lack of love that Paul really highlights and exposes the tension, this black hole of this expectational gap of love, our expectation and the reality. See, we, have, we, we, we get it. We actually realize that, that, that the expectation of love is not wrong. We need love. We crave love for a flourishing life. Even our culture understands this. This is why we have like slogans such as, all I need is love, love. Yeah, this is why we have, this is why, this is why we have a Hallmark channel. God, please let, let us love so the Hallmark channel can disappear. Anyway, just like the Corinthians, our view of love is distorted and biased to ourself. We do understand selfless love, and we do understand that it's needed for, for human flourishing. But unfortunately, in our world, selfless love expressed in films, cinemas, the best Netflix show, this selfless love becomes like a fairy tale. But the question still remains is, what is this love and how do I get it? What does this mean? If Paul, if Thistleton, the old theologian dude, is, are correct, what is this love that actually seeks the welfare of the other? What does this look like in the real world? So Paul doesn't just stop at the necessity of love. He drives it in to actually deal with the nature of love. Let's look at verse 4. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. How many, us, how many of us find this list super-duper intimidating? Yeah. Yeah. And right about now, you're thinking, okay, I'm going to go get the kids now and leave because this isn't going to get any better. How can I ever possibly live up to this ideal? Well, I hate to be the harbinger of bad news, but it actually gets worse. What we don't see here in English, it's, it's, it's pronounced in the Greek original text, is that these things that love is described as, they're not passive nouns. All of these things are verbs. And you're like, oh my gosh, what am I going to do with this? Let me step through the text and show you what Paul is trying to be forcefully say by using verbs in all of this. So, you ready me? Love is actually being actively patient 
When the most annoying person in the world is pushing all your hot buttons, love counts to ten and holds its breath. Love is indiscriminately walking in kindness, especially when there is no expectation of reciprocation. Love gives the last five bucks you got in your wallet to the guy who's grifting you, who's panhandling. Love walks intentionally into kindness when we know we'll probably suffer for it. Love is not dependent or expectant of equality. In other words, it doesn't envy when we get the short end of the stick, and it certainly doesn't boast or gloat when we have the upper hand. Love does not self-promote. Love does not pump its own tires or inflate its own importance. Love is not insecure, and therefore, love doesn't have the need to be arrogant. Love does not behave in an ill-mannered way. This is the one I struggle with a lot, actually. Love does not elbow its way into conversations and interrupt. Love does not mistreat or abuse other people. Love respects all. Love is not rude. Love is not rude. Love is not preoccupied with the interests of self. Or stated another way, love stands in opposition of all that is called self-love. Love doesn't seek its own. It doesn't insist on its own way. It's another one I struggle with here. Love is not touchy. Love is not grouchy. I'm not, you know, love is not Oscar the Grouch in the garbage can. Easily provoked, goaded into anger. Love isn't easily irritated. Succinctly, love doesn't have a short fuse. Love doesn't have a reckoning or a tally of all our wrongdoings. Love is not vindictive. Oh, love is not resentful. And love doesn't keep score. Love doesn't keep score. Love does not express malicious joy or gloat over or celebrate other people's failures. No. Love doesn't rejoice in other people's wrongdoings and failure. No. Rather, love joyfully celebrates truth. And then Paul summarizes verse 7 this way, with this like tight, concise, juggernaut of beautiful words. He says, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. One theologian expresses it this way, and I think, oh, it's, it's, it's a phrase that I'm like, oh, Lord, let me live into that. It's, he says it this way, love never tires of support. Love never loses faith. Love never exhausts hope. And love never gives up. And this is what Paul is saying to the Corinthians here. Anthony Thistleton again, he says, Love decenters the power interests of the self and of its peer group and recenters them on the other, primarily in God, but also in the other person disengaged from self interest. Whew, that's hard. This is exactly the nugget that William Booth said when others, full stop, mic drop. This quote is a hard one, so don't misunderstand it, but it needs to be said. Agape, which is the Greek word for love, is an attitude of radical and completely selfless concern for others, which cannot be readily combined with concepts like right or fairness. Some of you are bristling right now. Both which imply that the person has certain legitimate claims for himself. Agape, or love, by contrast, requires that in relation to the other, a person goes the whole way in their direction. The whole way in their direction. Love goes the whole way in their direction. Others, 
full stop. Now, do not misunderstand this quote about legitimate claims on the self to human rights. Human rights exist in this world because this kind of love that's described here doesn't really exist in the world. It doesn't exist devoid of power and exploitation. That's lacking in our world. Christians over the course of the centuries have advocated for human rights. Why? Because this is an outworking of these very verses right here. So, rant over. Paul says that in love, I don't get to reserve, I don't get to protect some part of myself, but rather, selfless love goes the whole way in the other's direction. This is what love is. Love never tires of support. Love never loses faith. Love, love never exhausts hope. Love never gives up. Now, aside from that, there's something I need to state because I know you're going to have conversations in community groups and with each other after the fact. The question may be asked is, well, is love then the greatest of the spiritual gifts? So I have to, I have to address that sucker. No, it's not. Paul says here, he's not calling love the greatest spiritual gift or the highest gift, but rather love is the means by which all of the other gifts operate. It is meant to be the way of life for a Christian. It's, not, it's the norm. It's the guide to exercise all the gifts. If you look in the you know, Gospel of John, if you look in, in 1 John, it's, the, John uses this word abiding. This is fruit of abiding. That's what love is here. In, in Paul, actually, in Galatians 5, he calls this type of love the fruit of the Spirit. Not the gift of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit. Love is the base operating system. The gifts are like, are like programs or applications that, that operate in that operating system, if that makes sense. Okay, back to our text. The quest, then, the answer to our question, what is love? Paul restates this. He says, love never tires of support. Love never loses faith. Love never exhausts hope. Love never gives up. I acknowledge that you probably walked into the room, and when you heard this, you're like, Heath, are you insane? You just made things worse. You just increased the expectation gap. You do not know, Heath, how I've been hurt this week. You do not know. If love goes in all the way in the other direction, I will be taken advantage of. Who can live like this? Who can trust like that? I can't do my job like that. If I do, I'll be walked over, I'll be passed over promotion, I'll be exploited. I'll probably get fired. Heath, I might as well give all that I have to a Nigerian prince sitting in a room somewhere because it'd be better to do that than to live this way because I'm going to lose everything anyway. Or you might say, Heath, I can't parent like that. Have you seen my kids? Yeah, I had two of my own. I get that. Heath, I've been in a relationship with this expectation of loving in that way, but, but I have to protect myself. I can't do that. This kind of love is emotional suicide. I'll be hurt worse than I already am. There's no way I can live my life loving in this way. I can't do this on my own. Well, Christ City, welcome to the full clarity of the expectation gap. We desire to receive this kind of love, don't we? We read this and our heart burns. It yearns. We know we need it, but we feel ill-equipped. We feel powerless to walk out this love, and we are unwilling to give all of ourselves to the other. And in doing so, we can't do it because we understand one certain thing, that if we do this, it will cost us absolutely everything. It will cost us everything. 
and I can attest to struggling in this tension. Heath of 15 years ago is a different Heath today. But that's Paul's whole point here. It's Paul's whole point. In and of ourselves, we can't actually live this out. We can't operate biased with this kind of love. See, our bias is self. Self-protection, self-promotion, self-preservation, self-love. We are enslaved to ourselves. In order for us to actually love in this way, Paul articulates that we actually need something to free us from our enslavement. The Corinthians were struggling with this very issue. And this is why Paul starts the whole letter in chapter 2 with these words. Chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. He says, And when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. The solution to the question of how do we get this love? The answer to that is in the person and work of Jesus Christ and him crucified. You see, in 1 Corinthians 13, that's, Paul's, that's assumed knowledge. Jesus is the only way to fill this expectation gap. In Jesus, we see all the attributes of this love personified. Jesus left perfect love with his father and was born to abject poverty and filth. He was even a refugee. Jesus lived his life exhibiting the nature of love described to us by Paul here. He lived his life for the other. He died for the other. He was raised to life for the other. He ascended and is at the right hand of God now advocating for the other. Jesus surrendered his rights. He became a nobody and went the whole way in our direction for the other. Jesus is the very picture of this Greek word agape, which we translate as love. This is selfless love for the other, full straw, mic drop, whatever you want to do with that. Not only is he an example, not only is he the picture or the expectation that we are to look to, that we admire, but when we see him for who he is, we realize there is healing. There is forgiveness in and through him. He can actually deal with our addiction to ourself. We acknowledge and confess our sin to him. And when we do that, we are freed. We are freed from our slavery of self and a plethora of other things that we've patched up in the middle. Jesus gives us his operating system, capable of loving and living for the other. If you look at William Booth's life, this is what you see, the other. We acknowledge, we acknowledge that in Jesus, we are no longer relegated to a nobody status. In Jesus, we are not a clanging cymbal. We are not a noisy gong. No, love is a costly gift of grace that through Jesus, we can walk freely into. Jesus fills this expectation gap. In him, we can exhibit a love that never tires of support because he is there with us. We can operate in a love that never loses faith. Why? Because he is there with us. We can live we can live in a love that never exhausts hope. Why? Because he is there with us. And we can operate in a love that never gives up. Why? Because he is there with us. Now, what I'm about to say, Jake will expound on further next week. But, but the reason why I, I can't preach this service without saying this, because this is frankly mind-blowing and amazing. When this age is over, when all is made new, love is what remains. 
Faith will be realized. Hope will be fulfilled. But love, love will, re- will remain. Love is never ending. And that's not a cheesy Hallmark show. Love is never ending. So how do we live into this expectation gap of love? Huh? In Jesus. Now, I do not want to leave you with some thousand foot kind of like existential view of love. Why? Because the glorious and lofty nature of this love is worked out, is, 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 is fleshed out in the muck and the mire of everything that is broken in our world by people like us, by people like us. Now there's a saying that says, whatever doesn't come naturally to you is a discipline. So today... I would like for us to create a discipline as a church together. Not out of duty, but out of love. This is something that I've actually had to put in practice in my own life. But this is something that will give us handholds as we scale and as we have help from Jesus as we climb up this expectation gap. You see, we look at this description of love here, and we evaluate where we measure up. All of us sat here as I read the text. You were referring, oh, I'm good there. Oh, I really suck there. Oh, I'm good there. Oh, no, yeah, don't even want to look at that. And what we do is we take these mental snapshots of where we are right here, right now. The problem with that is it's good for right in this moment. But what happens is over time, we use that mental snapshot as the arbiter, as the measuring stick, as the guide to where we are doing in our lives. And when we don't measure up, we're suffocated. So what I would like to propose is to create a discipline that we can take snapshot after snapshot after snapshot after snapshot so that we can actually see how we were growing in love. So we can look at this thing and not measure it off of this, but we can actually plot a course to say, oh yeah, I used to struggle here, but now I don't struggle there. I used to really deal with this and and it's there and I used to be really good at this and it's grown so much, it's amazing. That's what I would propose for us today. So in the time we have left, I'm going to give you some homework. Now, I want you to take out all your phones right now. Take your phones out. And I want you to take a picture of this next slide. Take a picture of that slide. As a church, I would love for us to prayerfully and honestly reflect on these three things. In what ways do we actually see this love in ourselves that, that is reflected by Jesus? So what do, how has Jesus empowered us already that we don't even see? And the second thing, we need to reflect and prayerfully consider what are the ways that we don't see this love in our lives? Where is their lack? And thirdly, and this is, the, this is the bit, in our areas of lack, dream, reflect. What could it possibly look like if we put maybe one of these things into practice over the next week? What could it look like? What could it look like? So from that reflection, I would love for us to to repent in the areas where we fall and we fail, and in grace and in prayer, try to implement some new faucet of love in our day-to-day practice. And over time, when you take these snapshots, you will see, I promise you, look, I'm a moron. I used to be vindictive, mean, angry, grouchy. I'm like Oscar the Grouch and Walter White mixed up in one, and I'm angry and mean. If I can grow in these areas, you can grow in these areas. But what it takes is it takes discipline. It takes discipline. Not as some sort of duty, but it takes discipline because 
It's Christ's outworking love in my heart and my life. And, and it will get to the, the reason why it's a discipline is because the already hasn't come yet. The perfection of love is not here right now, and we walk in this in-between time. So, Christ City, I want, I want at the end of my life, when I ask Keith, what is love? I want me to prayerfully and honestly answer others, full stop. Christ City, I want us as a church to say the same thing as William Booth, others, full stop. I want this to be on our church's epitaph, others, full stop. Let's pray. God, we confess that we are holy and feel completely ill-equipped. But Lord, we recognize that we are not ill-equipped because we have you. We thank you for your son and his work and how he sent, you sent him to our world to be broken, to show us this love, to, to live this love, and to give us this love. So Lord, we pray and we ask for forgiveness in the areas where we have not followed and walked in your ways, where we have closed ourselves off and never, and never given ourselves wholly first to you and then to the other. So Lord, this we pray by your Son who is at your right hand. Amen. Hey everyone, this is Jake, lead pastor of Christ City Church, East Vancouver, and I want to let you know about a few things. First, if you're not a part of a local church, let me invite you to join us each Sunday morning at 2605 East Pender Street in East Vancouver for worship, word, and sacrament. Second, if you are new and you want to get connected, let me say welcome. Christ City Church East Vancouver is a neighborhood church committed to making missional disciples for the sake of the neighborhood. If you want to be a part of or hear more of what we believe God has called us to do in East Vancouver, please reach out to me at jake at christcitychurch.ca.